This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello and welcome, everyone. It's great to be back hosting another episode of the East TraumaCast series. I'm your moderator, Faraz Madbeck. I'm an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. And our topic today, we're discussing traumatic lumbar hernias. This kind of may be looked at as a kind of an uncommon uh, hernia, uncommon pathology that we see. Many of us have seen it on CT imaging after severe bone trauma. And it's typically a vulsion of the tendinous attachments to the abdominal musculature off the bony bel- pelvis. And the, the size can be frequently considerable. And the definitive management is often controversial, likely stemming from their uncommon occurrence. So it's really hard to accumulate adequate experience, essentially due to a lack of familiarity. How are they different from traumatic hernias? What is the appropriate time frame for repair? What kind of repair or approaches are utilized? What kind of mesh or tissue repairs are utilized? Uh, all these questions and more. Uh, really delighted to have two outstanding guests today that are going to help us uh, sort through that. Our first guest is Dr. Alfredo Carbonell. He's a professor of surgery and vice chairman of academic affairs at the Department of Surgery at Prism Health in Greenville, South Carolina, and he's a co-director of the Hernia Center there. Really a household name when it comes to discussing hernias of all kinds. And our second guest is Dr. Ben Zarzer, recently uh, left the Indiana University and just was recently appointed as uh, chair of the Division of Acute Care Surgery and Regional Journal of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he's also the co-section chief of the Acute Care Surgery uh, Division there. So thank you both for taking the time to be with us. Dr. Zarzar, if I could start with you, can we talk about the initial management? How do you approach a patient with this diagnosis when it's made during the initial resuscitative phase, if you see it on imaging? I usually, you know, obviously if they they need to go directly to the operating room for whatever reason, I would, um, I would you know, go to the operating room uh, for hemorrhage control or, or peritonitis on exam. Um, sometimes on physical exam, you can you can actually feel these hernias. Um, but if you end up in the CT scanner for whatever reason and you diagnose it there, you get a pretty good view of, of what's going on uh, as far as, as the hernia. And I would say typically they're not very subtle. Um, the, the lumbar, the lateral hernias that I've seen happen tend to pull, tend to happen uh, as a result of pulling away from the, the, the muscles from the pelvic brim, or they tear just a little uh, superior to the pelvic brim. Um, the ones that I've seen that are uh, involved the anterior abdominal wall, uh, a lot of times they'll just uh, essentially cut the rectus muscles in half and then may or may not involve the, the, the obliques laterally. So um, you can see different uh, types of abdominal wall hernias from, from trauma, but that's initially what I look at. And then um, there's, I'd say, you know, the vast majority, maybe 70 some odd percent of them, uh, of the patients will have 
an associated injury. Now, and I'm not saying an intra-abdominal injury, but just having an associated uh, injury um, because of the, the high force that's required in order to, to produce a, a, a hernia like this. Um, so they often have you know, fractures uh, of the extremities or the back um, of the spine uh, or other associated injuries. So sometimes the management of those injuries dictates uh, the, the sort of the next steps. Yeah, it seems like the, the management of associated injuries constitute the, the, often the principal indication for operative intervention, at least in these patients. And the experience, the limited experience I've had is that they have exquisite tenderness on exam. And oftentimes you explore them and you may or may not find an injury, but then you're faced with this large defect is your preferred approach to um, maybe try tissue repair that you're not burning your bridges? You can use mesh if, if there's a recurrence down the road, or would you just close and come and lift a fight another day, so to speak? Yeah. So um, I think initially when I first encountered these uh, types of uh, injuries, um, uh, yeah, I tried to fix it uh, primarily. Um, but that was, that was, a, that was not a good plan. Um, the reasons why is because the, the tissues, when you look at them, and you, if you've ever seen one of these things, you, you know that the tissues are just destroyed. Um, there's a lot of hematoma. There's a lot of inflammation that's going to form later on in the initial post-injury period. The patient may be in hemorrhagic shock. So it's not like it's the ideal time to go in and, and try to fix, fix a hernia definitively. So what I do now... Um, and I think what I would say is probably the, the, the optimal way to manage one of these is to deal with whatever you got to deal with as far as bleeding and, and bower sections or whatever you need to do, but then to close the hole temporarily. Um, uh, and I, typ- I typically use a vicral mesh um, to do this. Uh, I'm not trying to get any kind of tissue ingrowth. I'm not really trying to fix the hernia. Um, just trying to keep the bowel inside the, the abdominal cavity long enough for us to uh, get the patient through whatever their initial uh, injury is, and then to a point where we can repair this in an elective setting uh, later on down the road when the patient's not in the middle of a big inflammatory response. Yeah, that sounds very reasonable. Now, Alfie, what's your approach in terms of a delayed repair? How far out would you wait? You probably see a lot of these patients kind of semi-electively in your hernia um, center that present, you know, after, after an injury, is there a certain time frame, or do you re-image them and how do you decide? Yeah. So I, you know, I de- definitely agree with everything that Ben said, which is, you know, mitigate the defect in any way you can, whether that's bridging with, uh, you know, a very cheap vicral mesh um, or, you know, primarily suture reapproximating some tissue together, knowing it's going to fail, but potentially making the size of the defect smaller. And then, um, you know, dealing with what you have to deal with from an injury perspective, the only, the, unfortunately, the downside is sometimes these people require not only, not only a midline laparotomy, which puts their midline at risk, uh, when that eventually gets closed, but then they often have these lateral defects, uh, as well, which can create a quandary when you go to fix them. And then I do like to wait for the most part, uh, anywhere from six to 12 months post 
injury. And, you know, I mean, you could probably operate them as soon as, um, as soon as three months post, uh, post injury. Uh, but I tend to wait, um, you know, till they're back to their normal post-operative state or pre, you know, back to their normal pre-trauma state, uh, and are, and are fully recovered and just kind of let the dust settle completely. Uh, and, and six months is a minimum for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, six to 12 months, I think is reasonable. We often either do it ourselves or resort to consulting one of our orthopedic colleagues. Well, you know, this, talk about fixation to the iliac crest uh, with bone anchors. Is that something that's, and you guys experience like fairly commonly um, necessary or can you just, you know, uh, secure the mesh to soft tissue and fascia? Yeah. So in, I think historically uh, I, I used to be a fan of bone anchor fixation, particularly when defects were immediately abutting the iliac crest or the pubic bone, but I, I don't think that that is really necessary anymore, and I don't I don't practice it with any regularity anymore, unless you know because I think that you can get a very large overlap um, along the along the inside of the pelvic brim and that iliacus muscle on the inside uh, that you know you're going to have enough mesh tissue overlap that you don't need to fixate. Uh, to the iliac crest uh, in any way, or the in any for this by the same token, when you're doing a you know pre-vesical dissection or a dissection in front of the pubic bone um, or behind the pubic bone, I think you can get a nice uh, mesh deployment uh, posterior to the pubic bone. The only time uh, that I still use fixation is if I'm worried if somebody has actually had um, fixation, uh, orthopedic fixation of the of the pelvic bone due to massive trauma. And if they have plates and screws, uh, sometimes it's difficult to get that nice overlap behind the bone simply because of the degree of scar tissue. So if I'm concerned about placing my mesh, uh, preperitoneal and getting enough overlap behind the pubic bone, uh, then I might use uh, a bone anchor or two in that situation, but I'm still competing for space, even for purchase in the bone specifically because they have fixation at the bone already plates and, and screws so um i would say that for the most part now i no longer use uh, bone anchor fixation uh, although i historically had in the past what about you ben is that is that your experience as well in terms of bone anchors fixation yeah yeah i'd say it's pretty rare to to have to to, to need to use them um but it's a good uh, a good trick to have in your armamentarium if you need it um, not only for these types of hernias, but um, if you've got a bad diaphragmatic hernia, sometimes you need to fix to a rib. Um, a bone anchor can help with that too. Um, uh, so uh, rather than just putting a suture around a rib, sometimes that's hard to do. Um, so in any case, it's I, I think it's something to have in the armamentarium, but I think it's not something that you're going to use very often. And like you like you mentioned, you may need you know some some help. Um, from orthopedics or another, you know, surgeon who does it more often to come in and help you if you if you have to place one. Um, it's not technically that hard. It's just nice to have somebody else uh, help you with the the ins and outs of doing one for the first few times if you end up having to do one. Um, so I I have a question. So just so if you were to, um, and this is 
uh, if you were to put, um, what, what do you think your general approach is to doing one of these when you, when you, when you need that overlap? So let's say you've got like a centimeter of, of sort of questionable tissue along the pelvic brim. How, how would you approach uh, fixing that with, with mesh if you were going to uh, uh, do that, Alfie? Yeah, so great question. And one of the caveats of not using bone anchor fixation is I'm talking specifically about a mesh that you're placing preperitoneal. And if you have a large enough landing spot for your mesh below the defect along the inside of the pelvic uh, brim that you don't need bone anchor fixation. But again, my preference is to do these operations and place the mesh in the preperitoneal position. And the reason being is that the peritoneum peels away from the underside of the abdominal wall very easily lateral to the rectus muscle. You know, posterior to the rectus muscle, it's, 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 it's quite adherent, and we've all, we've all seen that. But lateral to the rectus muscle, it wipes away very easily, and we all understand that from, you know, retroperitoneal access to the aorta or to the spine, if, any, if anyone does retroperitoneal access for neurosurgery, is that you can get into that plane, you know, transplants, the same thing. That plane wipes down very, very easily. So I exploit that plane for mesh placement, and the reason being is that I want the, de- I want the mesh to be behind the hernia defect uh, and uh, and I want there to be good mesh tissue overlap so that I've got the mesh alongside healthy tissue uh, and and it's and it's and it's gonna be it's gonna be you know plastered in this preperitoneal plane which really requires very minimal fixation because where's the mesh gonna go if you've got it in a pocket and that and that pressure of the visceral sac is going to push, on the peritoneum and thus the underside of the mesh and hold everything in position. So that is my absolute unequivocal go-to is the preperitoneal position uh, for any of these lateral abdominal wall hernias, whether they are off the iliac crest, whether whether they are more lumbar, whether they are subcostal um, uh, or, or, or true flank, uh, any of those lateral defects uh, I think are very easily approachable from a preperitoneal position. And that typically requires positioning the patient either bumped up slightly or flexed on a bean bag uh, and, um, and a lateral, a lateral incision. Uh, so lateral incision sort of focused over the biggest, you know, the apex of their defect that you, 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 you have looked at their CT to determine what that is. Because sometimes these patients won't have a full thickness defect of all their obliques. They might have torn only their transversus and their internal, but their external is is intact. Uh, and you got to be really deliberate about where you place your incision, again, over the apex of their bulge uh, before they go to sleep, you know, standing up and pre-op holding, uh, really mark the apex of their bulge and that and, and, and mark that and make a horizontal, you know, horizontal mark. And that's where you're going to make your uh, incision. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I've, I've uh, fallen in the trap of not marking them before they went to sleep. And then it gets to be hard to know exactly where to put your incision. I think that's a really good point. So Alfie, in that case, if you're in the preperitoneal space, you would use an uncoated, you know, naked piece of proline mesh then? Yeah, that is correct. I think, uh, you know, whether it's polypropylene or polyester, but I think a bare non-coated, again, you're not worried about visceral adhesions. 
the peritoneum, as long as your peritoneum is intact, um, and it, and it often is, uh, when you do this, uh, this section, uh, is that you, you only need a, you know, a bare piece of mesh, you know, very cost effective, cheap, you know, should be less than a hundred dollars for, you know, a 30 by 30 centimeter piece of that mesh. Mm -hmm. Is there any role for biosynthetic or if anybody's still using biologic mesh as far as durability and long-term recurrence, any differences or preference to using one over the other? Yeah, I, I, I personally don't use uh, biologic mesh. Um, I guess it's not unreasonable if people are concerned about uh, contamination or infection at the time of the operation that, that, that they consider the use of either a synthetic bioabsorbable mesh uh, or a biologic mesh. But that, that hasn't been our practice. You know, despite contamination, uh, we, we still use permanent synthetic mesh in, in, in our practice. But I don't, think it's, I don't think it's unreasonable, but I think the long-term durability of an absorbable mesh, a biologic mesh, uh, is, is not going to match the, uh, you know, the, the, the long-term strength, obviously, uh, of a permanent synthetic mesh. Yeah, I would agree with that too. I think our experiences shown in the data show that the biologics seem to durability just isn't as good as a permanent mesh. So if you have the option to use a, a, a permanent one, I, I would I would do that. And that's sort of the approach that I take with these um, with the initial management, you know, planning essentially that we're gonna do that. So try to get take care of all the contamination and anything else at the initial operation, use a temporary closure of some sort. And then come back uh, and find another day to put in a, a more permanent mesh for a longer. Yeah, I mean it can't be stressed enough. Like Ben said, I mean you can't, you, you don't need to swing for the fence at the first operation. Your first operation is to save the patient's life, address their life-threatening uh, injuries. A hernia is the last thing you need to be worried about, and it is literally the lowest thing on their on their problem list that needs to be managed at that index hospitalization or operation. I mean, if it's simple to do, okay. But otherwise, I think it could very easily be ignored and deal with the life-threatening things first and come back and operate them electively under the best possible case scenarios, under completely clean conditions, under non-inflammatory, uninjured conditions. And that's when you're going to get the best result. Alfie, have you had instances where placing a mesh in the Preperitoneal space was technically not feasible, and you've had to revert to an intraperitoneal or an onlay uh, location. Yeah, I mean, I in in our experience, our go-to is, uh, is is obviously the retromuscular preperitoneal position. Uh, very rarely do we need to bail out and do an onlay approach or a um, or an interperitoneal mesh placement. Um, in fact, uh, I mean, we've, you know, we've, we've, we publish a large series of lateral abdominal wall hernias and, you know, I think only, you know, four of them were interperitoneal. One of them was an onlay. We're in, you know, you know, 80, 90%, uh, you know, the balance was all in the preperitoneal or retromuscular uh, position. So I think surprisingly, it is a very accessible plane. The only things that make it sticky are operating too early number one. Uh, number two, previous hernia repairs and potentially previous mesh in that space if somebody has tried it. Uh, and, 
you know, in a trauma situation, I think the only the only issues would be operating too early or a prior mesh in that space uh, or even a prior intraperitoneal mesh, which is not infrequent, where people will get maybe a biologic pla- mesh placed intraperitoneal or even a permanent synthetic placed intraperitoneal at the time of the injury. Um, and then that really makes that preperitoneal plane sticky that some that a mesh is on in the intraperitoneal position on the underside of that very delicate plane that you're trying to dissect. So in, in those situations, it, it can uh, it can be quite quite uh, quite adherent and quite sticky. Right, so, Ben, in terms of long term recurrence um, in your series, when you bring it back and, and do it in a delayed fashion in terms of a definitive repair, what have your uh, numbers been like in terms of recurrence? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, maybe we could get, you know, uh, about 30% um, have a recurrence at some point in their their lifetime, maybe a little less than that. Um, and I think some of that's just using the use of uh, biologics instead of a, um, a more permanent mesh or using too small of a piece of mesh, not having enough overlap. Um, I think those have been the reasons why in some cases there's been a recurrence. Um, and a lot of those were, uh, are, or if they, they tried to operate a little too soon and put the, you know, try to repair it too soon. And they, it just seems to pull away from the muscles seem to pull away. Um, or you get a mesh infection and then, you know, you're back to square one again. So, um, mm-hmm. so I feel like as I've gotten more experienced, you know, and, and the approach that Alfie has been talking about is I think the optimal one, a big, a big piece of mesh to, uh, of a permanent nature to bridge a, or not to bridge, but to, you know, completely cover the defect with some, with really good overlap. Um, in a non-interabdominal position or non-interperitoneal position is the ideal situation. And uh, the, the, the more you adhere to that, the, the less likely it is that you're going to have a recurrence. And I would say it ought to be, you know, less than 10% would be the ideal situation. I mean, they're difficult hernias because they're in the position that they're in. But if you follow these tenants, you ought not have as high a recurrence rate as I think I've had, um, you know, and a lot of these, I think we're dealing with just not, you know, not approaching it the right way from the beginning. Yeah, I agree. I agree, I agree with everything, uh, you know, Ben said, I think, you know, we've gone through learning phases of, uh, you know, biologic mesh and, and seen the, 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 you know, the long-term recurrence rate of that. Uh, we've utilized lightweight mesh, a very, a very, you know, thin filament diameter and very wide pore uh, mm-hmm. that we've had several central mesh fractures. We've, we've even seen that with medium weight meshes, which is our preferred mesh, uh, you know, is, is a medium density, uh, you know, polypropylene mesh. And we've even seen uh, fractures of that of, of, of every brand. I mean, those are more rare, the midweight meshes uh, and, 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 and overlap, you know, I think under appreciating or not appreciating well enough the magnitude or the size of the defect, which is why I think the CAT scan is, is critical. Uh, you know, uh, proper positioning of the patient, proper, uh, 
you know, placement of the, uh, of the incision, uh, and, and a really wide dissection. I mean, anytime somebody rips their, you know, oblique musculature off their, you know, off their iliac, uh, crest, uh, or rips their rectus muscle off of their, you know, pubic bone. Um, I mean, you need a wide overlap because you can't rely necessarily on the integrity of the tissue that's left behind. So, um, I think a wide mesh overlap. And the other thing is sometimes considering, and which is what I do for the most part now with these wide, I'm sorry, with the lateral defects is I'll use a heavyweight, uh, a mesh, a traditional heavyweight polypropylene mesh, um, which, you know, every company makes their traditional one that has been around for years and years because, you know, they've torn their muscles, their symmetry the symmetry of their abdominal wall is never going to be perfect. It's not going to be, they're not going to be symmetric to the uninjured side, even with a nice hernia repair. They're always going to have a little bit uh, of, of a different appearance uh, on the affected side. So, you know, utilizing a stiffer mesh, that's not going to, that's not going to bulge. I mean, it's the concept of just, if you use something that's stiffer to replace the abdominal wall, it's less likely to bulge than something that's softer and compliant. So those are the instances that I will use a heavier weight uh, mesh, a traditional narrow pore polypropylene mesh, uh, simply to just be a stiffer lateral abdominal wall. And then also counseling the patients to that this is not going to be a perfect cosmetic repair. You will never look like you did pre-injury, um, but, but it will look and feel significantly, uh, better than it, than it does. Uh, and then I think one of the other things to consider too is as odd as it sounds is raising a large enough skin flap so that you can identify all of the attenuated musculature because although the defect in the muscle uh let's just say they don't they have a they don't have a full thickness defect they only have a defect through transversus and internal abdominal oblique let's say that defect is only eight by eight centimeters their external abdominal oblique may be super attenuated and blown out present but is, but 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 thin and attenuated because of the hernia. If you if you just simply open the uh, the, the external oblique, do your preperitoneal mesh placement, approximate the transversus and internal on mass together, and then just simply reapproximate the attenuated external oblique, they'll still wake up with a bulge because you haven't addressed that attenuated oblique. So raising a large skin flap allows me to identify how much of the external oblique, for instance, in this circumstance is attenuated and should I resect part of it or should I just close it and then imbricate it to really tighten it up? And, and one of the keys is, of course, taking that patient out of flex if you put them in flex to do the operation, right? Because if you close them flexed, when they unflex, they're going to be bulged. So there are these little nuances that you need to remember at the end of the case, which is immediately prior to abdominal wall closure, unflex that bed and straighten them back out. Uh, and then also consider either resecting the attenuated hmm. musculature um, or uh, closing, imbricating, and continuing to roll in or, 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 or you know, posteriorly imbricating the musculature uh, so that you know, everything, everything looks, looks tight at the conclusion of the procedure. Now it may not hold, your invocation may not hold, uh, but, but at least you've made that effort, uh, you know, at the, uh, you know, at the time of the hernia repair. So these, these little nuances that I've learned the hard way multiple times. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a great point. I mean, uh, oftentimes we think about, you know, functionality and as, as well as the aesthetic, you know, end result and, and the symptoms of the patient. 
Um, but let me um, let me make it a little more interesting. So somebody didn't heed your advice and maybe operate a little bit too early and has an intraoperative enterotomy. Would that change your management in terms of, you know, the time-honored debate of using synthetic mesh in a contaminated field? Um, how, would you, how would you manage that? So we'll do Ben first and then Alfie. Yeah, I mean, I think in that case, um, I guess it would depend on how much contamination we're talking about. And, uh, and if it's just a, a, a little bit, a little small little hole, I might try to fix what I could and then, um, and then try to put the mesh in a, you know, close, close the peritoneum over the top of, of that, uh, get some, something between the mesh and the, uh, you know, clean plane and, you know, wash things out really well, change gloves, change gowns, all that, uh, use some antibiotics in the periop period. Um, and I, I, I would consider just pressing on with a, a repair, um, if it's significant contamination, if there's dead intestine, if it's, you know, colonic, um, then I, I, I would use a, a biologic mesh if I wanted to try to, um, proceed with a, a repair at that time. Um, otherwise you, you know, you could, you could bail out again, uh, and come back and fight another day. Um, with a, a, you know, just like at the beginning, the initial operation, you could just put a piece of micro mesh in and fight another day. Um, you hate to do that, but, uh, having a mesh infection also isn't ideal. Yeah. So to, to, to kind of tack on to what Ben said, I mean, uh, if somebody's got dead gut, um, and some, you know, worse than expected intraoperative finding let's just say that this is all done at the acute time you know of, of the injury it just it, it it wouldn't make sense to try to do a definitive hernia repair at the time because there's also a risk that you might have to go back in right so if somebody's got you know let's say somebody has an ostomy as a concomitant part of their injury or or, or somebody's had their abdomen open and they've had a couple looks um, to, to, to address the viability of the bowel, like you would never want to try to hit a home run at that point, because what if you did this massive definitive abdominal reconstruction, you know, anything, even if you use biologic or you use a synthetic and then, and then the anastomosis of the bowel falls apart or they, or, or they have this, you know, rising, you know, you know, tachycardia and lactate, and you're like, oh gosh, we need to reoperate this patient because they probably have, you know, further evolution of their, you know, of their, of their, of their injury. And, and then, and then you've, you've, you've done this massive repair, which is why it's always good to just, you know, ignore the hernia at the index operation, deal with what needs to be done, let them get better and come back in a totally elective situation. Um, you know, for me routinely when I'm doing an operation, uh, you know, if, if we get an enterotomy, uh, I, I, you know, in our practice, we, you know, we routinely utilize permanent synthetic mesh, regardless of the degree of contamination. We reverse colostomies, um, ileostomies, perform bowel, uh, resections, colon resections, um, and, uh, and routinely implant, uh, mesh in clean contaminated and contaminated fields. The ones that I hesitate to utilize it in is in a true dirty field. So if I'm removing infected mesh or I am, am dealing with a significant fistula of the abdominal wall simply because they have a lot of inflammation and induration of the abdominal wall and the skin, 
I might avoid a permanent synthetic mesh in those patients uh, and try to come back and fight another day. But we, I mean, we're, we're preparing an, uh, uh, an over 500 patient experience of mesh in, uh, in, uh, in class two and three wounds. Uh, and, uh, and I think as long as you place the mesh in the extra peritoneal position, that is not indirect contact with the viscera or your anastomosis, uh, I, think it's, I think it's certainly safe to do. Uh, now, a tissue separating mesh intraperitoneal at the time of a colon resection, that's a little bit different. I'd certainly be hesitant to do that. But um, although it's been done and it's been published on, um, I like to hide the mesh, uh, particularly if, uh, if you have uh, any sort of injury or any degree of contamination during the operation. Yeah, I agree. That, so switching gears a little bit now, if, if you decide to approach these hernias, I know, you know, ETEP or expanded or extended total extraperitoneal repairs have been described for ventral and inguinal hernias. Is there a role for that approach uh, laparoscopically or, or robotically? Uh, how, how would you make that decision? Does size matter or, uh, again, the time frame in terms of approaching it with, with a minimally evasive technique? Yeah, regarding minimally evasive technique um, for, you know, traumatic, uh, traumatic lateral hernias, uh, certainly, certainly reasonable. Um, although historically, you know, pre, pre-robotic experience for me, I might approach those laparoscopic if, if, it, was not unre- if it was not unreasonable. Uh, now I, you know, I will either do those open or, or robotic uh, because I'm trying to hide the mesh and I'm trying to place the mesh in the preperitoneal position. For me, lateral defects that are approached robotically, um, I think those should be reserved only for small defects that don't have a lot of disfiguring um, qualities or symptoms for the patient. Because again, I think if they have a large uh, disfiguring defect, you need to do some plication. I believe you need to do some plication, uh, potentially resection of the skin, the excess skin from the, uh, from the, uh, from the hernia, uh, or plication of the attenuated musculature that I just don't think you can approach or do well uh, robotically. And I just don't think it ends up looking nice. And, uh, because you're to be able to do the operation robotically, you have to have the space to do the operation under pneumoperitoneum. So you, you, you won't get that full appreciation of how tight to make it because you need the pneumoperitoneum to be able to work in that extra peritoneal space. So I will reserve, you know, an ETEP for a lateral hernia, um, or a preperitoneal robotic repair for a lateral hernia, only if the defect is a smaller circular defect. Now, what number that is, you know, something on the order of, you know, probably no greater than, let's just say, you know, six or seven or eight centimeters, as long as it's, um, so size of the defect combined with the amount of attenuation, bulge, and disfigurement that the patient has. Um, certainly you can do a very nice preperitoneal dissection and you can close defects and you can place mesh robotically in the extraperitoneal position, but I always worry about that attenuated musculature on the other side. Uh, so if, if somebody has, and, and what the skin looks like on the other side. So if somebody has an intact external oblique that's thinned out uh, and, and with a big bulge uh, or has a lot of thin skin 
uh, I won't approach those robotically because I think that patient needs a good plication and resection of skin possibly as well. If it's, a, if it's truly a full thickness defect, all right, with all through all, def- all layers of the abdominal wall, and it's not huge or disfiguring, and you're going to be able to close that defect, um, you know, robotically, uh, then I think those are reasonable to approach robotics. So it's probably a common, you know, long-winded way of saying combination of size of the defect and amount of, you know, kind of disfigurement, attenuation, and excess skin would be my decision to do it, you know open or robotic. And I'm not sure I have a lot of, uh, uh, a lot to add there. I, I'm a single port surgeon. I just like really big port sizes. So, uh, that's, that's double hand assist, Ben. Double hand assist. <laughs> yeah, that was double hand assist. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so Alpha, you would do them in the same position, flex lateral, whether you're doing ETEP or uh, laparoscopic or robotic, you do the same lateral decubitus approach so so great question no and the reason is if you think about it when you're doing it open you're coming from the outside in you don't want the physical constraint of the costal margin and the iliac crest closing that lateral space for you because that's that's your way in to do what you need to do um, now I'm talking about, la- you know, lateral ones, you know, if somebody has a super pubic because their rectus muscle tore off, eh, it's a little bit different. I don't, I don't need to put a patient like that in flex, right? That's a, that's a supine, you know, every day of the week. Right. But, but for the lateral defects open, I will flex them and, and put them on a beanbag. Depends on how lateral it is for, um, if, if I'm approaching these robotically, I just simply tilt them without flexing them uh, because I'm coming from the underside of the abdominal wall. So I don't need to fight that space between the costal margin and the ribs. I'm going to be developing a preperitoneal plane and working behind the abdominal wall. So it's inconsequential to me where the oblique and the, I'm sorry, where the iliac crest and the, 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 the ribs are. And remember, prior to closure, you want to be able to straighten them back out and close the muscle. So if I'm robotic, I, I, I can't just take them out of flex because the robot's dock. I can't move them. So I got to start in the position that I'm going to end. So I will just simply put those patients on their side a little bit and do a, a you know, a, an extra peritoneal or, you know, an ETEP approach uh, to that, um, uh, to that position. But but leave them unflexed because I, I don't want anything hindering my ability to close those defects. And I almost invariably close all of the lateral defects in, a, in an anatomic horizontal or oblique fashion. Uh, I don't ever close them vertically like you would close a midline laparotomy vertically, you know, anatomic vertical. I close them anatomic horizontal or oblique and, and, and I need them to be unflexed because if I flex them, it's pulling my hernia wider right? And challenging my ability to close that defect. I mean, the pneumoperitoneum in that space is already hurting my ability to close their defect. I don't need them to be flexed as well and have it be even more painful. Yeah, great point. And I, I was always trained, you would leave a drain, whether it's open or robotic in, in the preperitoneal space. Is that your practice as well? Yes, if it's a, um, yes, if it's a massive, uh, it's a massive dissection. Um, and I typically will, you know, I, I have gone through stages um, and, and, and I used to leave it in until it was draining less than 30 cc's in a 24 hour period, you know, which is what 
kind of I was always taught uh, in the past with drains. And then now I just basically leave them while they're in the hospital recovering. And I do not send them home with a with uh, their preperitoneal or retromuscular drain in place. Now, I will often, if I have done a big subcutaneous dissection to imbricate their musculature uh, and they have a they have subcutaneous flaps, those patients get subcutaneous drains that I do leave in longer until they're draining a minimal amount. But you're right, for retromuscular preperitoneal dissections, whether they're straightforward midline incisionals or or lateral flanks or anything like that, I, I place a drain as long as they're in the hospital. And that may be, you know, one to two to three days, depending on the size of the defect. Um, and and that, that's typically all I need uh, them to have the drain in for. Yeah. And I think more and more I've kind of gotten um, to the point where I just leave them in the, in the hospital while they're in the hospital and take them out before the patient goes home. What about follow-up? Do you just follow the patient clinically in terms of, uh, you know, recurrence of symptoms or would you re-image them or is it just based on their complaints down the road? Yeah. So we, um, we typically just follow them clinically, uh, unless they have some, some complaint, um, you know, then I might CT them to, you know, reassure them of of their concerns, their fears or my fears, you know, is that a seroma? Is that a recurrence? Uh, you know, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll CT them, but we don't use CT as a routine method uh, of follow-up. I think patients are pretty good about knowing whether their hernia has returned. Uh, and that's been, that's been shown in, uh, in studies. There's a, you know, a ventral hernia, uh, inventory, uh, you know, which is a questionnaire that, that asks some pretty direct questions that has a very high, uh, sensitivity and specificity and correlates very well with, with CT evidence of hernia recurrence or ultrasound evidence of hernia recurrence, if the patients respond positive uh, to the to the questions of you know do you think your hernia is back, do you feel like you have a bulge, um, they're they're pretty sense patients are pretty sensitive uh, to themselves and and I think that's uh, you know it's a good screening tool to use um, and uh, so we just go we just go by symptoms and of course you know physical exam and look at their symmetry. Um, if, if we don't like the way the symmetry looks or we think uh, something just doesn't quite look right, then we'll CT them. But we don't use CT as a routine method of follow-up. What about you, Ben? Anything to add in terms of follow-up? Yeah. I mean, I think, if again, if they become symptomatic, I don't know if I'd routinely do anything. Um, but um, certainly if the patient becomes symptomatic, I would, uh, I would you know, investigate. Um, and, uh, and then I think, you know... I, I feel like you need to follow these folks um, for at least a year, if not longer, um, just just to make sure that they're not uh, they're not doing one of two or three things. I mean, it's a, they need to even before you start the hernia repair. Like, I really think it's important that they stop smoking, that they lose as much weight as they possibly can, and that they don't pick up those bad habits again uh, if they've stopped um, once they finish you know, once they're in the recovery phase and then, you know, up to, you know, a few years out, I mean, this needs to be permanent change if you can get to that point for the patient, because the things that are going to put them at risk for recurrence are, are, um, are the types of things that you don't want to have, uh, happen pre-op, you know? So, uh, if you can avoid that, um, and help the patient with that, um, then I think you'll overall have a better, 
long-term outcomes. And that may require seeing the patient in the clinic uh, to help keep them on track. And then also to make sure they're not developing symptoms. Yeah, I agree, Ben. Those are, those are good points. Um, the other thing I think is interesting is th- these are probably different case scenarios, right? Because we're talking about traumatic you know, hernias, which are typically as a result of, of a massive amount of blunt trauma, um, different than penetrating trauma. And again, I don't know the trauma literature very well, but my understanding is that, you know, there's a high incidence of trauma recidivism. And I, and and if I had to guess, I would probably say that that's more so with penetrating injuries, although I don't know if that's truly, truly, and you guys can certainly uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. But so if we just think about trauma recidivism, uh, and uh, the, you, the, the age that maybe some of these injured patients have, think about how they may have either future trauma or future or require future surgery. So what we do to repair that hernia at the index operation may very well have some impact for that patient in the future. Maybe they never get a hernia again, but they get another trauma. Mm. And need to, they need to get opened again, and they have an interperitoneal mesh, uh, or they require their gallbladder, a hysterectomy, a colon cancer, perforated whatever later in their life, um, and they've got some massive mesh wallpaper in their entire abdominal wall. And this this affects all of us that do hernia repairs. Um, you know, there is you know in our practice, uh, you know, seventeen you know, 17% of the patients we get, we operate on, get reoperated for something in the future. And that's just five years of follow-up. Uh, the Danish hernia database is, uh, uh, Danish hernia database, uh, in two years tracking patients, uh, had a 30% risk of reoperation, you know, even for non hernia related disease, right? So just think about somebody has 30 or 40 more years to live after you've repaired or done something to them. Um, there's a high likelihood they might require future surgery or get injured again. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that you need to do anything different, but I think probably just think about that patient a little bit. Um, and and, and, and it, my, my thought is hide that mesh in the preperitoneal position uh, so that nobody has to deal with it adhesion-wise or fistula-wise. Uh, you know, I mean, they may have to cut through it or cut through a portion of it, uh, but they won't encounter, you know, massive mesh bowel adhesions, such as you would with an interperitoneal mesh, which is why we've certainly gotten away from that. But that's just, that's just editorial on my part. Any, any, I'm just going to pose it, pose a question. Any, um, so a couple, couple, a couple, a couple scenarios, let's just say somebody has, uh, comes in and has a, um, you know, a massive lateral hernia from, you know, seatbelt injury, um, a lot of interperitoneal injuries, solid organ and bowel requiring, um, you know, you know, potentially ostomy. So open abdomen, you know, ostomy. And then, and then you just can't, you just can't get that patient closed in the hospital. So now they've got, you know, a 16 centimeter, you know, diastasis, uh, you know, you know, the rectus muscles, uh, and their skin for that matter, you can't, you can't close them. Uh, oh, and by the way, their obliques are blown off of their, uh, their iliac crest. And, uh, you know, 
they're getting they're getting better you're going every two days three days for you know uh you know a wound vac change uh, to the operating room you know the bowel is all getting you know looking like the brain everything is getting stuck together uh then now what now what you can't close their muscles in the midline you're done going back into their peritoneal cavity they've got a uh, they got a an end colostomy and a mucus fistula and uh oh yeah that big lateral hernia on the right a big uh, a big flank traumatic hernia what do you think about that patient what, what would you do in that scenario how would you how would you close their abdomen uh in the midline and you know what would what would you do what would you be your plan i guess yeah that's a that's a good one my plan would be to transfer him to greenville south carolina i think <laughs> um no i think uh yeah, so I mean, I think everybody's had one or two of these patients, in the, in, in, or more, you know, in their lifetime. And when you can't get the midline closed, I think your your options are, particularly if things are starting to get sucked in. Um, I mean, in that scenario, I, I my my typical plan would be to uh, um, use Vicryl mesh again. Uh, I would probably Vicryl both the the lateral hernia as well as the midline. Um, if the defect is a big one and I don't think I could get it together at all, that's uh, what I would do. And then, and then um, I'll either close the skin over the top of it if I could raise skin flaps or um, wait for granulation tissue. And then, uh, um, and then uh, skin graft it early and then come back and fight another day. Um, that would be, that's one way. Uh, another thing that I've, I've done and I've had variable success with it is doing more of a components type separation technique in the, in, in the sort of po- not super acute phase, but the patient's getting better. Their inflammatory response is better. They're, they're relatively young. Um, I've done, um, you know, and a not a, a complete component separation, but enough to get the midline closed with their own tissues and then, and then, uh, fight another day on the lateral hernia. So, and then deal with that and the ostomy and the, you know, at, at another operation. Um, I've done that, uh, all right. So I'm going to, let's, let's go back to that first case. So, you got you got their abdomen closed. You got their skin closed. Vicro meshed everything to kind of contain the viscera. You close their skin. They're doing well. They have a colostomy and a mucus fistula, a midline that really is just skin closure, and then a lateral defect. You know. Um, so what's your next step? Do you then bring them back six to twelve months later and do their restoration of intestinal continuity plus hernia or do you restore intestinal continuity alone uh do something and then come back for a third stage for a definitive hernia repair so let, let's let's do that one just to make it interesting yeah no, that's a good that's a good i mean that's a that's not uncommon so um uh if if i could i would probably um yeah, I, w- I would probably do a, I know it sounds crazy, but I think I might 
be tempted to do either a three-stage operation in that situation because of the the lateral hernia and the um and the ostomy takedown complicate matters because i'm assuming that our ostomy is on the other side so now we've got you know destroyed the tissue planes on the left side the, the right side was destroyed by the by the original injury and then your midline is a problem so now you've got you know the abdominal wall is going to need to be almost completely and totally replaced. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure I'd want to do that at the initial operation of, um, of ta- doing the ostomy takedown. And, and uh, um, I might want to come back and fight another day in that setting. However, having said all that, what I have done in the past is, is done a component separation, use the patient's own tissues and this is when they don't have a big lateral hernia. So uh, just, a mid, just a midline sort of planned ventral hernia and, a, and an ostomy um, using a component separation type technique um, and then reinforcing it with mesh. Uh, that, that's been my approach for patients who have uh, a planned ventral hernia and an ostomy that needs taken down. Um, if they've got a complicating factor with this, la- this lateral hernia, I think that changes things a little bit because now you're going to really need to, you know, your component separation isn't going to work in that, in that setting. Um, so I think I would, I would tend towards a, a three-stage procedure in that, in that type of situation. But that's, you know, that's a sort of territory. I would, you know, I would agree. You know, that, that that's an interesting scenario, Alfie, but like Ben said, it's not uncommon. I, we've had fairly good success in our center using Whitman patches. You got no disclosures, you know, trying to sequentially tightening and washing out, bringing the midline together to avoid a plant ventral hernia. But in that case where just the abdomen won't close, I agree with Ben. Yeah, we've done the varical mesh skin graft, bringing back sometimes a year later, you know, with a pinch test. And in the setting of a colostomy or nearly ostomy, you know, they're diverted. Uh, typically in an open abdomen, they would actually – not come through traditionally. Transrectus would be actually laterally through the flank, you know, hopefully the other flank, not at the side of the flank hernia. I suspect the flank hernia would be the last priority to be addressed. And if in the setting of a skin graft, what we've done is, is to avoid that burning bridges, doing a component separation and risking contamination at the time of colostomy closure is to just go at the junction of the native skin and the skin graft, getting into the abdominal cavity that way, reverse, you know, restore continuity and actually tacking the skin back bringing them back again to stage for the definitive abdominal wall reconstruction. And it seems to be, you know, just mitigating the risk of, of mesh infection and, and fistulas. Excellent. Good thoughts. Any, any thoughts on, you know, since we're talking really about traumatic hernias, right? We, we, what about, what about, what about, what about massive chest wall, you know, trauma? What, what about, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, breaks ribs and, you know, blows apart their abdominal wall, their ribs, intercostal muscles, plus or minus a diaphragm. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen this. These are, you know, cough hernias, simple cough hernias in, in really, in really, really round and obese men with very thin abdominal walls. Um, you know, or, or seatbelts or crush injuries. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen this. How would you approach a traumatic uh, chest wall slash abdominal wall slash diaphragm hernia? Any thoughts on that from the from the trauma experts? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the principles are not too different than what we've been talking about before. You know, um, you've got your bailout options if you've got to deal with the intra-abdominal injuries as well as or hemorrhage, um, temporary closure. And then when you go, uh, when I think about options for temporary closure, um, and and I'm thinking about the diaphragm first. Uh, so most of the time I've been able to mobilize the diaphragm. And um, if, it's, if it's ripped away from the chest wall, uh, if I can't get it to come back together again, um, or come you know, to the chest wall, then wrapping a suture around a, a rib above and just moving the diaphragm up a little bit. Sometimes that helps a lot if it's been ripped off. Um, the caveat to that is, is that that rib needs to be fixed. You can't, you can't just, you know, you can't have a, a floating rib that you tie the diaphragm to. And I, I really think it has to be fixed. So, um, so I, I think in that situation, if you've got uh, that much tissue damage, getting them out of the initial post in the in inflammatory period, doing some sort of fixation of the ribs and fixing the diaphragm at the same time, and then going with a, a vicral mesh for the, for if they've got an abdominal wall component and then coming back and fixing the abdominal wall later. Um, that's how I would probably approach that kind of situation. Um, uh, if the ribs are not too bad, then, uh, or they're broken at a different spot. I, 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 like I said, I think I would just fix this, uh, the diaphragm hole, it's pretty rare that you have to, that I found anyways, that I need to fix it in an acute setting with a piece of mesh for the diaphragm. Um, most of the time I can mobilize it enough to close it and get it, you know, separate the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity. Yeah, those, those excellent. Uh, that, that was that was gold. Got a lot of nuggets in that uh, in that answer. Um, for us, anything uh, to add on that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think the, the rare instances where there's massive tissue disruption. That I mean, I know it's been described to use a piece of um, actually biologic back when we, we were using things like alderm, just to bridge the diaphragm together. Um, and I'm not sure how how durable that repair was, but you try to do your best you can just to kind of bring it together with permanent, um, you know, non-observable suture. And, yeah, fixating the rib is, is always a good idea. But, yeah, you need some sort of chest wall uh, stabilization with, with, you know, rib plates uh, to kind of restore the, uh, the the chest wall. Ben, any uh, final thoughts as we wrap it up here? No, I mean, I think that, you know, I think we covered a lot of the really important points and, um, you know, uh, Try not to fix it uh, at the initial index operation. I get what you need to get done, done, get out, come back to fight another day. Um, Prepare to kneel. Uh, permanent mesh repair seems to be uh, the, the I- ideal long-term situation. And then, um, you know, pay attention to the patient's pre-op status and try to get them optimized and keep them that way in the post-op period if you can. I think those are probably the, if I were going to summarize things, you know, I think those are the, probably the biggest, uh, the biggest and most important takeaways. Yeah, I agree, Ben. That's uh, all those comments are, are, are gold. That would be the, uh, you know, the, uh, the summary of the paper right there. All right. Well, then that was outstanding. I think this, this was good. I, I'll have to be honest with you. I learned, I learned some stuff, so I think it's good. Great. Well, 
Dr. Ben Zarzar and Dr. Alfie Carbonell. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. Make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking, and building relationships, career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East. Thank you.